Throughout history, God has used revivals to change lives, to change churches, and to change the world. My journey as a Christian began when I was 14 years old, when my neighbor across the street, Jean Edwards, a good Baptist woman, kept inviting me to go to revival. I didn't go to church. My family didn't go to church. But Jean insisted that I go to revival at Russell Baptist Church. And so my stepmom relented and and off I went to my first ever revival service. And there I heard Jack Edwards preach the word of God of such clarity that I was convicted. Now, what was going on in my life was I, as a 14 year old, I was afraid to go to sleep at night because I didn't know what would happen to my soul if I died. So I would lay awake at night and wonder what would happen to me when I died. When I gave my life to Jesus that night, I didn't fully understand what had happened to me, but I knew that I was no longer afraid to die because I had received a gift of everlasting life through Jesus Christ. My life was changed forever. Now, a couple years later, when I was 16, Reverend Bob Harrington, an evangelist, came and did a revival in Huntington, West Virginia. And our youth group got together to go hear Reverend Bob Harrington. I'd never heard an evangelist quite like Bob Harrington. He was known as the chaplain of Bourbon Street. His ministry took place down in New Orleans, and he was a comic and a clergy and an evangelist. And I was a couple of stories that I remembered that impacted me and I Googled them and I found them and I want to play them for you. A little flavor of revival that I heard from Dr. Reverend Bob Harrington uh, when I was, I was 16. Texas, not long ago. I talked to a man on Governor Connolly's staff. As I was talking to him, I said, tell me about uh, Governor Connolly. He was riding in the car with the president when he was assassinated in, te- in Dallas, Texas, not long ago. I said, what, what was the governor thinking about when the president was dead on the back seat and the governor there on the, with the bullet in his body? What was the governor really thinking about? He said, well, the governor was thinking about his president, thinking about his nation, thinking about his state, thinking about his family, thinking about his people. I said, come on now. What was the governor really thinking about? He said, well, every time the governor get down to that part, he'd break down and start crying. I said, sure you would. Because whether you're the governor of Texas or shoeshine boy in the French Quarter, when you got a bullet through your body and the death angel moving around your heart, you're not pledging allegiance. You're not checking the validity of the preamble of the Constitution. You're concerned about where you're going to spend an eternity. And I'll always say this again. If the Lord's good enough for you when you die, we ought to try him when we live him. He won't hurt you. I pulled in this shell station one time, and I pulled up to get me a little gas. See, I never get over a dollar's worth at a time. And that way you can preach and preach and preach and keep on preaching. And so this guy came back there to put some gas in my tank, and, and uh, he was leaning over there. He was thinking, man, I could see the filter on his tip. And he was leaning over there, uh, trying to think and fill my tank at the same time. That old shell sign just a flick in, and I said, hey, man, what? I said, you saved? Am I what? <laughs> He's a real brilliant fellow. I said, are you saved? <laughs> yeah. I said, he said, I don't know. I said, what do you mean you don't know? He said, well, I don't know if I'm saved or not. That old shell sign just a flicking them my ashes about to drop. I said, man, if you're not saved, you take the ass off of that sign. That's where you're going if your ashes drop in that tank. <laughs> now, that was the first time I had ever heard a pastor 
uh, make people laugh. Uh, but I never forgot that story. You know, if you didn't quite hear what he said, if those ashes drop off a, in, into that tank, you can drop that S off of that sign, and that's where you're going, um, if you don't believe. Now, I don't think that's the best way to do evangelism, but, uh, <laughs> but it sure got that guy's attention, I'm sure. In my second year here at Mount Horeb, we were praying for revival and praying for God to do something great. The church was small. It was up on the corner of Old Cherokee and, uh, and Foskalin. Wanted God to do something great, do something special. So I heard that Billy Graham was going to be in Charlotte, and I thought it would be a great opportunity to, to get a busload of people from Mount Horeb, well, a small busload of people from Mount Horeb, to go up to Charlotte. And I had not done my homework well because it rained the whole way up there. It rained when we broke out the fried chicken. You, you got to have a little fried chicken at revival services. And then I also forgot to find out that it was youth night uh, at the revival. And I, I began to have even greater appreciation for Dr. Billy Graham because on youth night, he had DC Talk, a Christian rap band, that were singing. Now, I didn't have many youth on the bus. And so they were a little concerned as they listened to that rap music that Dr. Graham had playing there in Erickson Stadium in Charlotte, North Carolina. And then after uh, DC Talk got through, Michael W. Smith was going to sing. Now, I figured he would be pretty safe, Michael W. Smith, you know, friends or friends forever, you know, song. And he played the hardest rock and roll music I've ever heard a Christian play. And never forget one of the little ladies leaned down the aisle underneath her umbrella and said, Pastor Jeff, when's Johnny Cash singing? <laughs> and I said, I don't think Johnny's on the program for tonight. But I'll never forget when Dr. Graham stepped out on the stage in front of 50,000 plus people, most of them young people. It stopped raining, which to me was amazing. And then I heard Dr. Graham begin to talk to those young people and he talked about Madonna, the rock singer who wore crosses around her neck. And he said, just because you wear a cross around your neck doesn't mean you have a cross in your heart. As you understand what Jesus Christ did for you. I listened for the next 20 minutes as he preached a sermon to those thousands of young people, inviting them to not follow the popularity of the culture, but to follow Jesus Christ as their personal savior. And I watched as he gave an invitation and I watched thousands of young people file out of those seats and go down and give their life to Jesus. Life's changed for eternity. As I sat in there, I wondered, Lord, why did you have me bring a bunch of older people to a youth event at Dr. Billy Graham's crusade? And on the way back, the Lord said, trust me. And I believe what happened on that night, a seed of revival was planted in the hearts of the people of Mount Horeb that we needed to focus on youth ministry. And there were youth in Lexington that needed to hear about Jesus. And whatever we needed to do, we were going to do in order to reach the youth and the children of Lexington. And now this ministry has expanded way beyond that and reaching youth and children, not just in Lexington, but in the Midlands and really all over the world as our mission teams go out to make an impact. God had a bigger plan than I had, and we're still seeing the rhythms of that revival now, in 1988-99, Mount Horeb decided to do a revival here on the premises. 
We had not yet built this sanctuary, so we didn't have room for everybody to attend this revival. And we put a tent out on the ball field, and we had a tent revival here at Mount Horeb. Now, how many of you were there at that tent revival? Raise your hand. Let me just see. Raise it high. All right. About seven of you. Uh, I can see your hands. And we probably even asked that question. Can I see it? Raise your hand. I can see it. No, it was a wonderful, wonderful time. It was one of the first times that Mount Horeb did something outside of the box, outside of the walls of the sanctuary. And we saw that God would bring people to a place where he could do mighty things. And during that revival, many people gave their life to Jesus Christ. And again, the rhythm of that revival still reverberates throughout our congregation. Now, how do you define revival? What is a revival? Let me give you a definition of revival. True revival is when the living God powerfully breaks into human history with the good news of his salvation. It's when God shows up in new and fresh ways. It is the renewed sense of God's presence, God's power, holiness, and truth that inevitably spills out of the church and into the world. You see, when revival comes, it never stays in a local church. It expands beyond the four walls of a church. Revival brings about genuine conversion. It brings about transforms lives. There, there are healings that take place. There are signs and wonders that are seen. There, there leads to transformation within the communities. It brings a greater awareness of the needs of the poor and the hurting outside the walls of the congregation. It is a time of restoration. It is a time of transformation. It is a time of reconciliation that only God can bring. It's a special anointing of God's presence in a place for a season, for a time. Now, one of the things we're going to be doing next week uh, is next week at the end of the services, I'll be preaching in the auditorium and Bill Balknight will be preaching here in the sanctuary. And, and we're going to conclude uh, this, this particular series right now with baptism. And so we're going to have a, a baptismal pool in the auditorium. And for anyone who is, is a believer in Jesus who has never been baptized, we're going to offer baptism by immersion. I had two people this morning tell me they were going to be baptized next Sunday by immersion over in the auditorium. We're also going to have baptism here uh, by sprinkling water for those who have never been baptized. Now, as Methodists, we don't believe in rebaptism, but if you've never been baptized and you're a follower of Jesus, or in this service today, you give your heart to Jesus for the first time, then you can be baptized next week. It's part of revival, a transformation, a change. Now, let me give you a design for revival and talk about God's role in revival. And then I want to talk about our role in, God, in revival, God's role. Our scripture for this morning is based on 1 Corinthians 1.30. For it is from God alone that you have your life through Christ Jesus. He showed us God's plan of salvation. He was the one who made us acceptable to God. He made us pure and holy and gave himself to purchase our salvation. This is God's role in revival. And God has already done what needs to be done in order for there to be a revival, an awakening, a spiritual explosion. Now God has showed us his plan. We know his plan. God sent Jesus into this world. I love what Hebrews 
the Bible says in Hebrews 1, long ago God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son, through his son. Now God has shown us his plan through Jesus. And in John chapter 1, it says, and the word became flesh, Jesus, and dwelt among us. God has chosen to show us his plan through his son and also through scripture, through God's holy word. Second Timothy says this, all scripture. I want to say all scripture there, not just some scripture, but all scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. See, revival does not occur until I allow scripture and God's Holy Spirit to tell me to reveal to me what is wrong in my life. He corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God showed us his plan in scripture and through his son so that God could make us acceptable, acceptable. I want you to hear this this morning. No matter what you've done, no matter how unholy you feel, that because of God's plan, he can make you holy today. He, he can make you clean today. He can give you a brand new beginning today. That's God's plan. God loves you so much that he wants to make you pure. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you haven't done, God, through his grace, can change your life today. God will make us acceptable. And then the last part of God's role is God gave himself to purchase our salvation you see, you and I cannot save ourselves. No matter how many good things we do, we cannot purchase our salvation. In the Old Testament, the Levitical system is that there need to be a penalty for the sins of God's people. And that's why they had a sacrificial system where sacrifices were made through animal blood shed for the forgiveness of the sins of the people. But God saw that was limited atonement. And so he sent his son Jesus into the world that he would go to that cross. And on that cross, his blood will be shed to wash away our sins. He would pay the penalty for our sins to purchase our salvation. So this morning, if you feel your life is consumed by sin, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, that can be washed away. Your salvation has been purchased. I love Galatians 1.4. The Bible says Jesus gave his life for our sins. Just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. In Colossians 1, for he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who what? Purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Friends, there is no sin that you have committed that God cannot forgive. There is no harm that you've done that God will not forgive. That's God's role in revival. Now, what is our role? While God alone is responsible for salvation, we alone are responsible for our response. We've got a choice to make. I had dinner, Lynn and I had dinner with a couple last night and we were talking about the difference in Baptists and Methodists and Calvinists and Wesleyans. And I said, you know, one of the, one of the trademarks of, of, of Methodist belief is, is John Wesley's strong emphasis upon free will. That God gives us a choice whether we will choose to be 
his people. Whether we will choose to be a part of a great movement of God. And I'm so thankful for the heritage of the Methodist movement. John Wesley chose to break away from the Anglican church because the Anglican church was, was dead. It was dying. It was, it was caught up in the world. It was, it was for the, the aristocrats. It was for the people that weren't interested in any kind of revival or life transformation. And he kind of broke away. He never, he never stopped being an Anglican, but he wouldn't let him preach anymore in the, in the, in the churches because of his strong evangelical orthodox biblical belief. And he founded and formed this Methodist movement that we're a part of. And John Wesley wrote about this Methodist movement and he said these words, I'm not afraid that the people called Methodist should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. But I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect. Having the form of religion without the power and this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, the spirit, and the discipline with which they first set out. Now those are prophetic words for a people called Methodist. Because the Methodist movement as we know it is in steep decline. Why? Because we have left and not held fast to the doctrine, to the spirit, to the discipline with which we first set out. And I will tell you today that I'm a Methodist pastor because of something that Dr. Billy Graham said in 1977. As I was wrestling about what denomination should I become a pastor in? Should I be a Baptist? Should I be a Presbyterian? Should I be a Methodist? I didn't know. Or whatever. I could have checked the whatever. They didn't have a whatever box. Today, you got a whatever box. You can be whatever. Um, didn't have that box in 1977. But I was in seminary. I was making a decision. Okay, where am I going to go? And Dr. Billy Graham said these words, that if revival ever comes to the United States through a denomination, he believed it would come through a people called Methodist because of their strong history of revival, started by John Wesley in England, and because of the connectional nature of the Methodist church globally. And I said, that's me, I'm a Methodist. And I've been waiting and praying for that revival to take place that Billy Graham prophesied about in 1977. It was the same year that Lynn and I got married in 1977. And together we've been waiting. And I believe that right now, in some form or shape, a remnant of the Methodist movement is getting ready to bring revival to this culture and to this land. And I want to be a part of it. How about you? I want to be a part of a movement of God that brings revival. A church that is alive for the movement of God where God does things that we don't know what God's going to do. You know, that's, that's what revival is. You know, things happen that we don't know are going to happen. Now, what are the rhythms of revival? And what is our role? Let me give you it real quickly. First is a resolve to pray. We, we've got a resolve to pray, folks. Not pray for our will to be done, but pray for God's will to be done. Hayden mentioned that following this service, out, right outside these doors, there's a bunch of sheets to sign up for a prayer um, a vigil on Friday the 13th. I love this on Friday the 13th. You know, for those who are superstitious and think it's bad luck, I don't believe in bad luck. I believe God says, we'll do that prayer thing on Friday the 13th just to show them what I can do, right? So sign up on Friday the 13th, uh, pray at your house, pray here, but let's, let, let's have a resolve to pray 
Second Chronicles 7, 14, if then of my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sins and I'll restore their land. That's what I want. I want God to move in a powerful way. But we've got to have a resolve to pray. It's not by coincidence that our number one core value at Mount Horb is to be prayer-driven. We want to be a prayer-driven church because that's where revival begins. I love what Jim Cimbala said, a pastor in New York City. I've discovered an astonishing truth that God is attracted to weakness. He can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit how desperately they need him. Do you want to have revival in your life? Go to your knees and humbly turn to God. The second role we have is repentance. Repentance means that I turn away from my sin. I I, I experience conviction about what I'm doing wrong in my life, and it leads to confession. And I will say to you this morning, we've got to understand the need for us to stop wanting revival for them and have revival instead for me. Revival doesn't start with them. Revival starts with you and me, okay? Repentance starts here. You see, when in, in, in the Israelites, when they prayed for a great awakening, for God to restore their land, they, they, they got in uh, sackcloth and, and covered themselves with ashes, and they were praying a prayer of repentance for their nation, not for themselves, but for their nation. You see, we need to pray and confess the sins of our nation. And there are many. There are many. When's the last time you prayed a prayer of confession for, your, for Washington, D.C.? I didn't ask you when's the last time you complained about Washington, D.C. When's the last time you confessed? Father God, we have sinned against you as a nation. We have gone against your will. We have broken your law as a nation. As a community, we've got to confess. We've got to repent. We've got to turn and be willing to follow God's call for revival. So I would encourage you to have a resolve to pray, to practice repentance. And then there must be a recovery of biblical truth. Revival happens when there's a resolve to pray, when there's repentance and a recovery of biblical truth. It's great to see our uh, young people in here with the acolytes, other young people here in the room. Psalm 119, how can a young person stay pure? A tough question in this world. What does is, what is the psalmist write? By, obey, by obeying your word. I've tried hard to find you. Don't let me wander from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now to get ready for this series, even on Friday when I was out walking, uh, I was listening to sermons by Dr. Billy Graham, who I think is one of the greatest evangelists that, ever, that has ever lived. I mean, the results speak for themselves. And Lynn and I were listening uh, a couple weeks ago to a Billy Graham sermon, and, and, and I was struck by, by how many times he said, the Bible says. Can you, if you ever heard a Billy Graham sermon, can't, can't you hear him say that the Bible says? He didn't exactly say it like that. I, I, I can't speak North Carolinian. Uh, <laughs> but the Bible says, or the Bible teaches. So we stopped the tape, or the, 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 
uh, YouTube thing we were watching, played it back. And I said, Lynn, you count how many times Dr. Graham says the Bible says or the Bible teaches. It was a 32-minute sermon. And in a 32-minute sermon, Dr. Billy Graham said the Bible says or the Bible teaches 47 times. 47 times. Now, let me just tell you that Dr. Graham did not always believe that. Early in his ministry, he struggled with the Bible. He wrote this, in 1949, I had a great many doubts concerning the Bible. That sounds like 2019 to me. I thought I saw an apparent contradictions in Scripture. Sounds like 2019 to me. And when I stood up to preach, I lacked authority And like hundreds of other young seminary students, I was waging the intellectual battle of my life. It sounds like 2019. Because right now, one of the great reasons for the decline of mainline denominations in this country and around the world is because of how liberal our seminaries have gotten and how far away from the scriptures they've gone. But Billy Graham was having that struggle in 1949. He and fellow evangelist Charles Templeton, who was considered by many to be a better preacher than Graham, who had the brightest future, a brighter future than Graham, they debated back and forth on the authority of Scripture. And Templeton was a student at Princeton Theological Seminary. And Templeton told Graham that they were behind the times, that no one took the Bible seriously anymore, and that we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Now, I can tell you over the last two years, I've been told by a good many people, well, Jeff, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history. History is changing. The culture is changing. You don't want to be on the wrong side of that. And my response has always been, I'm not going to be on the wrong side of Scripture. We need to be on the right side of Scripture. And finally, Graham writes, in the foothills of L.A., I surrendered my will to the living God. I knelt before an open Bible and said, Lord, now I want you to hear this. Lord, there are many things in this Bible that I do not understand. Can I get a second to that? There are many things in this Bible that I do not understand. There there, there are things in this Bible, he says, that, that are hard to accept. But you said, the just shall live by faith. And here and now, by faith, I accept the Bible as thy word. I take it all with no reservations. Now, I can tell you, as a young seminary student in 1977, 78, I made that decision. When I stood before the United Methodist Church and was ordained as an elder in the United Methodist Church, I said that I believed in all of the scriptures. Not some of the scriptures, but all of the scriptures. And today, if there's going to be a revival, there must be a return to what we believe about the scriptures. Graham goes on to say, within six weeks, we started our Los Angeles crusade. And during that crusade, I discovered a secret that changed my ministry. I stopped trying to prove that the Bible was true. And I found myself saying this over and over again, the Bible says, the Bible says, the Bible teaches And that authority created faith, and that faith generated response. And hundreds of people were led to Christ. And a crusade that was scheduled for three weeks lasted eight weeks in Los Angeles. Thousands and hundreds of thousands of people were in attendance. And listen to what Graham said. 
The people were not coming to hear a great orator, nor they were interested in my ideas. I found they were desperately hungry to hear what God had to say through Holy Word, through Scripture. I believe that same thing is true today. I believe that people are hungry to hear God's Word. And we've got to preach and teach God's Word. Jesus came full of grace and full of truth. Now, the results of Graham's preaching speak for themselves. It's, it's most experts would agree that he preached to over 210 million people in 185 countries. Estimated that 3.2 million people gave their life to Jesus because of his preaching. Did you know that in the summer of 1957, that Billy Graham preached for 16 consecutive weeks in New York's Madison Square Garden, sold out every night. Can you imagine that happening today? If there was a revival in New York City, no longer Madison Square Garden, there's bigger venues uh, in New York City now, but for 16 weeks, people came to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you think that would change the city of New York? I believe it would. I was blessed to hear two weeks ago that Greg Laurie, pastor in California of a non-denominational church, did a, did a crusade, 110,000 people came to a stadium to hear the gospel. We need a revival. We need an awakening in this country. On my way to church two weeks ago, preparing to preach this message, uh, Lauren Daigle came on the radio. Lauren Daigle is a young woman who's a phenomenal Christian artist. Her music is everywhere right now. All these other TV shows that are not Christian at all are, are using Lauren Daigle's song. And her song, You Say, 38 million YouTube views. Isn't that amazing? And, and here's the words. You say I'm loved when I can't feel a thing. You say I'm strong when I think I'm weak. You say I'm held when I'm falling short. And I believe, and I believe what you say to me, I believe. We need to let people know what God is saying to them. That God loves people. That God loves people so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross so that our sins could be forgiven and the penalty could be paid. Whenever that happens, my friends, there's a reality of God's power and presence. Revival is his arrival. And I can still see those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students walking down those steps in Erickson Stadium. And I want God to do it again. Amen? Will you resolve to pray? Will you practice repentance? Will you recover the value of biblical truth? Because revival is incarnational. It's not institutional. Revival is not creating an event, but an environment for God to move. Now, as we prepare to wrap this up, why did God show us his plan? Why did God have to make us acceptable? Why did God have to purchase our salvation. Because the Bible says that all of us have a heart problem. All of us are sinners. The Bible says is that the wages of sin is death. That's not a popular word today. But the gift of God is eternal life. The gift of God is eternal life. You know, when I listened to that sermon, Lynn and I listened together, it was Dr. Graham preaching in New York City. And the sermon he preached that night was called Heart Disease. And he said that the number one problem in America was heart disease. And he wasn't talking about physical heart disease. He was talking about spiritual heart disease. 
And if we had a problem in 1957 with spiritual heart disease, we got a catastrophe now with spiritual heart disease. See, the Bible says our hearts are the center of our emotions. It is a source of love, fear, courage, anger, joy, and sorrow. And when God looks at us, he does not look at our bank accounts. He does not look at how we're dressed. He does not look at what we're driving. He does not look where we live. He looks where? He looks at our hearts. He examines our hearts. He looks at our thoughts. He looks at our motives. And God asked a simple question this morning. How is your heart? How is your heart? In talking with my doctor about heart rhythm, he explained to me, and I may not get it right because he's a lot smarter than I am. So don't use this as a diagnosis by any means. But that I have four chambers in my heart. And that for my heart to be healthy and to be in rhythm, I need to get the same amount of blood for the same amount of time in the four chambers of my heart. And if I'm not getting that, my heart's not going to function. And I'm not going to be able to be the person that I want to be. I'm not going to be able to do the things I want to do because my heart is not functioning right. And if it's not treated, it can be fatal. And my friends, the same is true for us. If our heart is out of rhythm with God, our hearts are not right with God, then we will not be able to function and be the people that God made us to be. And the people that are going to suffer are our family and our friends and our work because our hearts are out of rhythm with God. And it will be fatal. It will be fatal. You know, when I have my annual physical, the first thing that my doctor does is give me an EKG because he wants to know if my heart is okay. He wants to know if there's any irregular rhythm in my heart. And this morning, I want to ask you that question. Is your heart right? Not is your body right, but is your heart right with God? Not your neighbor, not your spouse, but is your heart right with God? The book of Amos chapter four, verse 12 says, prepare to meet thy God. Everyone in this room is going to die. In some shape or another, we're going to die. That's just reality. Some of us are going to live a long, long time but we're going to die someday. And before we meet God, our hearts need to be right with God. I I was afraid to go to sleep when I was 14 years old because my heart was not right with God. And once he made my heart right, I slept like a baby because I knew that he had my life in his hands. The Bible says that you can know today that your heart is right. I'm going to close with this verse. Ezekiel 36. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. Your filth will be washed away and you will no longer worship idols. And I will give you a new heart and will put a new spirit in you. I will take out your stony, stubborn heart and give you a tender, responsive heart. How do you know that your heart has been made right? I'll pour, put my spirit in you so that you will follow my decrees and be careful to obey my regulations. You know, when your heart is right, it's a tender heart. It's a heart that loves God. It's a heart that begins to love God's word. It's a heart that begins to love your neighbors. It's a heart that begins to see the hurting in the world to go and change the world. So I don't want anybody to leave here this morning without you answering the question, is your heart right? We're going to stand and sing a a, a closing invitational song. 
we want to invite you to come to the altar to make your heart right with God. We'll stand and sing together. Uh, I surrender all. I surrender my heart to you, Father. I would ask you to come and pray for revival. There'll be people coming to pray with others. So let's stand, let's sing, let's not hesitate. Let's move forward. Let's revival begin this morning in your heart and in my heart. I surrender all.